Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking about how we can build the future we want from this moment. July 1st is around the corner, and rent is due again. As a young man, I remember constantly being one bad break from not being able to make rent. A high utility bill, a lost shift, a parking ticket, and being broke is expensive. Miss one payment, late fees kick in, and suddenly you're so in the hole you gotta cut bait on your housing, or your landlord cuts bait on you. Over the last few months, tens of millions of people have had one hell of a bad break, losing their jobs and so much more. And in a country where 40% of people would struggle to come up with 400 bucks to cover that bad break, we now face a potential housing disaster. So we gotta both figure out how to deliver relief for people now and do it in a way that gets to some of the big structural issues in how we do housing in America. Luckily for me, I don't have to go far to find someone to think about this with. Tara Raghavir is an organizer at People's Action and one of the best campaigners I know, and housing is her thing. I'm pretty sure the first time we met was when you came by that awful WeWork space we were housed at. Is that right? Is that when we first met? I think that's right. Yeah, I was looking for a job at People's Action and you all had offices at WeWork, which immediately made me question <laughs> whether or not I wanted to work at People's Action. You totally should have. That was like, and uh, yeah, a life of some low points. That was one of the lowest. Um, but you were so clear you wanted to organize on housing. You really weren't there to talk about a job at People's Action. You were there to talk about a job organizing around housing at People's Action. Like, why was that? I think at the heart of it, it's the issue within which I first identified like the political power dynamic that I found fascinating and enraging between the landlord and the tenant. Mm. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of violence and there was kind of an exploitation of power happening at a very micro level. And I think I've become kind of fixated on that power dynamic, like a a dynamic between someone with a lot of power over and above someone who doesn't have any. And then I went away to college and started studying housing policy in the private market where the power dynamic between landlord and tenant is like on steroids. Like the landlord has so much power over the tenant. So there's something about like bullies and people who are bullied and all of that, that um, I think has always motivated me to dig deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're in a period where we're trying to get people to think big and to some extent, like create a new common sense in America that actually the idea in the richest country on earth that everybody would have housing is actually common sense. Like that, you know, you'd build on a, one of the most successful programs in American history, Medicare and make it available to everybody's actually common sense, but we're, we're not there yet. And we talk about how crises or moments of grave danger, but also create big opportunity. What is the opportunity in the COVID-19 moment to help people think bigger about what's possible in housing? Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think this moment is one of extreme clarity and exposure of all that was already wrong. 25 million people were paying over 50% of their income to rent their apartments before the pandemic hit, right? That's 12 million households that were extremely cost burdened. And we know that the rates of evictions have risen across the country as rental rates have risen and incomes are not keeping up. So this crisis existed pre-COVID and there's this incredible moment of clarity that's been offered by the pandemic in which housing is the prescription. 
right? Housing was the number one prescription offered by public health officials about how to deal with this crisis as a society. And then, of course, so much injustice has been illuminated as hundreds of thousands of people have remained on the streets unhoused throughout this whole crisis. And as hundreds of thousands, probably millions more stand to lose their housing, either in the midst of this or on the other side of the state home orders and the states of emergency. And I think this is for a lot of people forcing, maybe not yet the imagination about what's possible, but at least the identification of there's a problem here that needs a fix, right? And I think our job as organizers is to provide the legwork that we've done in imagining another way and put that in front of people and get people to rally around it from this place of perhaps new politicization or radicalization around the system being wrong and never built to serve most of us. Mm. I love that point about housing is the prescription. I've never heard it said just like that. If you could say what you mean by that. So in the pandemic period, the first thing that we were told as stuff started shutting down across the country was stay at home, right? And I think in those stay-at-home orders or those shelter-in-place orders, the clear prescription is housing, right? Housing is the prescription. Home is the prescription. But that depends on people's ability to stay in a safe home or to have a home to begin with. And that's not a given, right? We know so many people are maybe housed, they're living in a home, renting an apartment, but that apartment itself is unsafe or unhealthy to them. Could be that the water doesn't work or there's black mold or they live with an abuser, right? Um, and then there are hundreds of thousands more who didn't have a home to begin with. And so that prescription was useless, right? The prescription of like staying at home or sheltering in place just doesn't work if you don't have a place in which to shelter. Can you spell out for us why the concepts in Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's bills, why that is the right solution? Yeah. So within a couple of days of everything blowing up around COVID, we got with our grassroots leaders and we asked them, what are the demands that we need federal action on and state and local action as well. And one of the first things that people named was like, listen, if I'm going to be laid off from my job, I just can't make rent. Like there's just no way. So rent cancellation was one of our top demands um, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then as the weeks wore on and more and more people were laid off, rent cancellation really rose to the top of our list. So we worked with Representative Omar's team to write a bill that would cancel rents and mortgages. It would provide penalties for any violators of those cancellations, and it would provide a relief fund for property owners to recoup some of their losses, but it's not free money. It would be conditioned actually on a set of tenant protections. And then finally, a piece that we're really excited about is that the Omar bill provides an acquisition fund, which says that if an owner is just unable to sustain their losses or simply wants out of the business, they can actually sell their property to the government, and the government would have first right of purchase to transition that from a private unit into public hands, into community control in the form of cooperatives, land trusts, or some other not, not-for-profit housing provision. You're not only the housing homes guarantee campaign director at People's Action, but you decided, what, a year or two ago to go back home to Kansas City 
and do organizing in your hometown. What inspired that? Yeah, so last February, I moved home to Kansas City where I grew up. I pretty much ran away when I was 18 and went to college about as far away as I could get. Really never thought that I would come back here. And then everything changed as in college, I started this research project about evictions in Kansas City, and it really got under my skin and into my gut, so to speak. And I was finding myself coming back to Kansas City once every couple months to talk to people about my evictions data that I had continued kind of compiling and noodling over for a couple of years. And as I came back, I presented to the mayor and city council and it felt good and people patted me on the back, but like nothing happened. Two years later, I was still mm. doing the same dog and pony show with my PowerPoint deck and <laughs> nothing had gotten better. Actually, the situation had gotten worse and I was the one who was intimately familiar with those worsening numbers because I was staring at them all the time. So I, I think it's interesting because that was like my side project and kind of a side hustle and I separated it from my organizing life. And then there was a moment of clarity where I realized that, of course, my data and my PowerPoint decks had not changed anything in Kansas City because the key missing ingredient was people who were directly impacted by the problem, organized around their own interests and demanding a seat at the table in Kansas City. And you know, that sounds so obvious in retrospect, but at the time I was like, oh shit. And then it felt like there was like a boot at my neck. I either had to find an organizer who was ready to wake up every day and figure out how to organize tenants in my hometown, or I just needed to move home and make that happen. So moved back in February. What's, I mean, what's that been like? Like moving back homes can be like glorious and quite complicated. Yeah, it's been all of those things. I think actually mostly glorious. Getting to know any place this intimately, I think is complicated. I grew up in this like white, uh, wealthy, very manicured community on the like nice side of the tracks, as it were. And now, you know, I'm organizing with communities that had none of the access to the like heaps and heaps of privilege that I had mostly as a factor of where I grew up in this town. So that's, you know, that's complicated, but that's good complicated. I think it's been really helpful for me to stare in the face of my privilege geographically speaking and like acknowledge that daily and then like organize from that point. And then I think like the glorious side of things is <laughs> glory. Unlike I knew glory could exist. I hadn't been a local organizer with like an actual grassroots base of people until I came back to start Casey Tenants with a number of our initial leaders. And I just feel like every single 24-hour period of the last year and a half, I have been taken to school by the mm -hmm. leaders in my base. And I've learned more about strategy and power and organizing and how to run campaigns, how to run meetings. Um, I, it's just like made me so much better at everything I've ever wanted to do. And then there's this other piece that's just like completely unquantifiable, which is like the pure joy of watching an individual leader transform their private pain into public power. And I've gotten a first row seat to that like 150 times over in the last year talking about hope. Like there's nothing like seeing Tiana Caldwell transform from 
a woman I met for breakfast when she was experiencing homelessness to like one of the fiercest national tenant leaders who's currently on rent strike, calling out landlords right and left, you know, on the phone with Senator Sanders' team negotiating the details of our Senate strategy. There's nothing like that. It's like pretty fucking incredible. It is. It is the best for sure. Organizers, just by the nature of our jobs, believe we will win. That if we organize, we build power, we get in fights and we stick with it, like good stuff's going to happen. And it'd be really hard to do this if we didn't believe that by nature. And I think this moment really challenges the ability of all of us, even the most hopeful, to be hopeful. Like, what are you seeing in housing organizing in the U.S. that's making you hopeful? Yeah, you know, I've had like such a yo-yo experience with believing that we would win. (laughs) (laughs) You know, net-net, yes, I believe that. And it's like hard to identify that right now. But I'm, I'm recalling like at the beginning of all of this, the kind of manic first few weeks were so incredible. You know, we were figuring out these new ways of organizing and we were convening tenant meetings over the internet and teaching our elders about how to use Zoom and stuff like that. Mm. And because we were winning stuff that we never imagined was possible. And I've been an eviction researcher now for like seven years. So I've stared at these charts of like 9,000 evictions, 10,000 evictions in Jackson County, Missouri. That's every single year for basically the last two decades. I never imagined that I would look at one of those charts and there would be a whole month for which there are zero evictions, right? Within 24 hours, we demanded an eviction moratorium in Jackson County, Missouri, and we won an eviction moratorium in Jackson County, Missouri. And there have been no evictions for the last month and a half which is amazing. That's not everything, because obviously those moratorium periods will end and rents have not been canceled and debts have continued to accrue. So I'm under no illusion that that was everything. But the very notion of an eviction moratorium felt insane three months ago. And within the first couple of weeks of this crisis, tens of thousands of tenants across the country organized for and won really good eviction moratorium policies that did an urgent and necessary thing, which was keep people in their homes during a period of like complete and total health and economic unrest. The politics of what we can do today are like completely exploded around us. Like the idea that we worked on a bill with a representative that would actually cancel rents. We haven't won that bill, but there's like legislation that's been introduced at the federal level that seeks to cancel rents, to actually intervene and one of the most serious and entrenched private contracts in American history between a property owner and their tenant. We've kind of blown open the seams of what's possible during Mm -hmm. this moment. And I, I think like the big agitation for me in all of that is like, how does that then need to adjust our vision about the big thing that we're trying to win? Because as, as much as we're campaigning for cancellation of rent right now, we're all very clear that the long-term fight is for a homes guarantee how does our vision for the homes guarantee need to be even bigger and even bolder than it was before, given all of the traction that we've gained in the last couple of months? Should we still be only asking for 12 million units of social housing, or must that number be increased by like three or fourfold to actually account for both what we need, but also what is potentially possible in this moment, unlike any other? If somebody's listening to this and feels inspired, like what are actions people can take? You know, the House has passed 
their version of the next stimulus package. It does not include rent cancellation. So our focus is now shifting to the Senate side, where we're really dogged about getting Senate leadership to think about cancellation as a core priority, uh, but then also to apply some of the principles of rent cancellation to the housing stuff that is in the House package. So I think everyday people have a role to play, obviously, in making that happen. One thing that I feel really clear on, and maybe one of the things that I would do differently in the last couple of weeks, there was no one representative of Congress who really felt the pain of the American tenant in the last like month, right? We were having people call in to all of their different Congress people all over the place. And we drove, you know, several thousand calls into Congress on rent cancellation, but there was no one person who felt like it was their problem to fix. And therefore, we heard a lot of passing the buck, right? Federal reps would say like, eh, we don't know if we can do this. Maybe ask your governors. Governors were saying, we don't have the money to do this. Ask the feds. And so no one actually ended up moving on a proposal to cancel rents when that was the number one thing that we were hearing from tenants they needed. So right now, I think we're going through a process of figuring out who exactly our targets are to kind of make clear to folks inside the Beltway what the demand is coming from the average American tenant, right? Yeah. Tara, like I first found organizing at a soup kitchen in Southern Indiana, and like it was the first thing that came naturally to me, like ever. I'd been like a kind of colossal fuck up up until that point, but it felt amazing to find something I was good at. And you are without question a natural. And I think we're just so lucky that you found organizing and chose organizing. I'm so excited to see what you're going to do next week, as well as what you're going to do in a few years. So it's a good thing. Thanks, George. It's good to hear that, especially on a week when I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you on a Zoom meeting soon, Tara. Bye, George. Thanks so much. This was fun. Everyone knows we're facing a crisis. Tara is reminding us that we faced a crisis of imagination for a good while. A lot about the last 40 years has beaten down our ability to dream. Our vision of what's possible can contract and become more narrow, or it can broaden and become more expansive. That's a choice point for us now, and it always has been. We have to lead toward the more expansive view. You can learn more about the work that Tara is doing and what you can do at peoplesaction.org slash nextmove. You can find Tara Raghavir on Twitter at T.A. Raghavir. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.